Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is proudly sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes Williamsburg Oils core watercolors and their vast line of acrylics. I have to say, in most of the studios that I visit doing this podcast, I find Golden paints. I'm often speaking with other artists about how much we love using Golden and how good the paint is. Golden's also a great company that's an employee-owned and involved in the community. You can check out their paints and mediums at goldenpaints.com. This week on Sound and Vision, a re-release of an early chat with artist Tomokazu Matsuyama. Matsu's an old friend, and I'm putting this remastered version of our conversation out in concert with his just-finished mural for Wynwood Walls in Miami. He also just had a solo show in Luxembourg with Zidun Basut Gallery. Here's me and Matsu talking in his Brooklyn studio. So one of the cool things about doing a podcast like this is I, I get the opportunity. A lot of people that I talk to are friends of mine who right. I've known for a while, but I haven't maybe asked them all the questions or dug deep into the past. Oh. So today, that's what you're going to do. <laughs> so you have a full list of questioner they want to ask me. No, no list of anything. But I do. I, I want to know uh, where you grew up and. I mean, I know a little bit about your youth, but not as much as I'd like to. Okay. So maybe you could start off just by talking a little bit about where you were born and what age, like when you started thinking about making artwork, all that right. sort of thing. Oh, okay. Is, have you already started? Yeah, this is rolling. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. Um, well, I was brought up in Japan, in this mm-hmm. little old town in Gifu Prefecture, which is in the middle of the Japanese Big Island. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little, give you a brief of where that, what that place was, is that it was in the center of this Japanese Alps. So it's in the mountain range where they had, very near where they had Nagano Olympics. Yeah. Um, you know, that being said, there's, the population is very small. Mm-hmm. Um, but the culture has kind of remained the same for about a few centuries. Mm-hmm. And people would call that little town Little Kyoto. Yeah. So it was just completely full of like tourism. Um, and for that reason, a lot of my friends' parents would business would be related in that. Um, yeah. It's like Japanese ryokan, which is the classical hotels, mm-hmm. to um, kimono dyeing, to sake. There's, there was lots of sake brewery because you know they have amazing rice and water, yeah. which makes the sake. And then also um, like ceramics mm-hmm. to Japanese. Did I say lacquer? No. no. So it was just basically fully nourished by that. Mm-hmm. And then at the age of eight. Um, it wasn't necessary with my father's, my dad's business. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom actually studied abroad when she was in college, mm-hmm. which was very rare back then because she was born in a day World War II ended. Yeah. I mean, Jap- Japan, Japan got defeated. Mm-hmm. So very little Japanese back then. And then when she came to U.S., I think in the 60s, she became a Christian, which mm-hmm. was quite rare back then yeah. for Japanese people. Yeah. But then, you know, she married my dad, which was from this very classical part of Japan. Mm-hmm. And she hated, you know, the city being extremely conservative. Yeah. And my mom influenced my dad, and soon my dad became a Christian, so they wanted to learn Bible. 
See, I didn't even know that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so how old were you? I was only eight. I, I was just in, got in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, again, middle of nowhere in the mountain range. I was just one of those kids just you know running around mountains. Yeah. And um, so my mom influenced my dad, and they, wanted, they didn't want to just go to Christian school. They wanted to learn Bible as a textbook. Right. So in Southern California, where she studied, there was a lot of... Um, school that did Bible as an academic, so mm-hmm. learn Hebrews and this and that. So they want to do they want to take it a little bit further beyond. So my mom started working when I was three. Yeah. And I didn't know why, but when I was age of eight, they just told me we're moving to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, at when I finished second grade I went to LA, um and back then it was the mid eighties mm-hmm. when the skateboarding and surfing culture was a huge in Orange County in Southern California. And becoming from nowhere of Japan, being exposed to that culture, it was a quite a culture shock. Yeah. Um, which wasn't bad at all, actually. And how old were you when it when you first got there? I was eight. And I oh, you were eight. Yeah, so you were speak- already, you know, culture-wise. It's not like you were so young that you just assimilated right into it. You were, no, no, no. I felt it was a different. big adjustment. Yeah, it was, it was a big adjustment. Yeah. Um, obviously, that part of um, California is kind of like New York. It was full of immigrants. Yeah. So... Really being exposed to other cultures, other ethnicities, and it was, it was pretty vibrant. But then yeah. again, I mean, I was young, I was eight, so within like a year or two, I was able to kind of adjust myself, mm-hmm. and then I was there for like three or four years, but by the time um, I was heading back to Japan, pretty much I became an American kid, Yeah, meaning um, really got influenced by the skateboarding culture because mm-hmm. it was just when it was growing, so I still remember... Um, around Newport Beach, you go to parking lots and you see like Mark Gonzalez actually skating. Yeah, that's cool. And um, one of my friends, mom's friend, um, she was much younger, but she was actually dating this pro skater which, whose name was John Grigley. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those early skaters that did their own um, skateboard deck designs. Yeah. And I would go visit them and then um, through my mom, and then they would give me some like random sketches. Mm-hmm. And that whole kind of skateboarding culture and just buying those Bones Brigade Power Peralta t-shirts yeah. really kind of got my first step into arts, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, being in California at that young age, it was really interesting in seeing those teenage smokers and really getting in, exposed to those California graffitis. And yeah. those culture kind of stuck in me, even though I had to go back to Japan around sixth grade. So I was only in California about three and a half years. But going back there, you know, I became a skateboarding kid. And I think that kind of gradually grew within me. And, it, and you went back to where you grew up? I did. Yeah. Well, what was hard was it was hard going back and readjusting myself back. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, because it was a very conservative part of Japan. They don't have this school restrictions anymore, but you have to have one of those buzz cuts. Yeah. And, and yeah. all the uniforms were like military uniforms. Right. So um, you need to wear a helmet to get on the bicycles. It was, it was full of restrictions. And then being in L.A. and... Just kind of becoming a different kid and really readjusting was really tough. Yeah. Um, also, yes. on top of that, there was really no what they call returning from other country. Mm-hmm. So I did get picked on pretty hard for just being a little different because Japan is so isolated. Yeah. There's really no neighboring cultures because it's just surrounded by the sea. Yeah. Um, and you were in, in the exact opposite of that kind of culture that you grew up in because that age, that time period in Southern California... It just seems like it was very counterculture. Yeah, it was. And Everything was... is going against, like the cool thing to do is to go against whatever, you know, you're supposed to do. Exactly. Which yeah. is what skateboarding 
was all about that, that culture really yeah. had that you know it was a big component i think of skateboarding was not only the sport but that culture of it exactly um yeah, it was really entertainful because also i had older i have an older brother who's uh-huh. three years older he was really into rock music and yeah. that was when all that kind of nice 80s music uh-huh. um came to birth yeah from madonna to um now, I remember the first song when I got to L.A. listening through the radio was uh, Material Girl from yeah, <laughs> Madonna. Madonna. was going on full <laughs> on. It was heavy rotated in any any channel you listen to. And then K-Rock, which then got yeah. to like, you know, Bon Jovi, Whitesnake, Guns N' Roses, mm-hmm. those popular um, heavy metal. And that kind of took me to a different realm as well. Yeah. So um, Japan was really not exposed to that type of music back then. So again, I was complete. I kind of completely aesthetically become a different person. Did you have some of that music and take it back with you? I did. I did. And cassettes. Yeah, it was cassettes. It was cassettes. And when I took them back, you know, there were these, some friends who were really interested, you know, has in strong interest in this Western culture. So Mm -hmm. I would have them listen to it and they get like really influenced by it. And, and yeah. Yeah. You were really cool for those people. For the ones who were into it. And then the other people probably, no. you got picked on. And, yeah, picked on pretty hard. Yeah, That's interesting. To and When you came and you, you had to learn English pretty quickly, I imagine. Or were you learning English in school before then? No, no, no. Well, not really. Was I mean, I was eight. so Yeah, you just yeah. got immersed into it. Right. Which is the best way to learn. Exactly. Well, I mean, I was eight, so it didn't feel like I was really learning, learning. I yeah. mean, I, I, when I got here, I couldn't learn, but... I guess, you know, my brain was young enough to kind of, um, like, sponge in all the language barriers very quickly. So within my family, it seemed like my brother was having much more harder time because he was already in junior high school. But as with me, it was was kind of quickly response. Yeah, it's amazing how that age difference, how your brain just cuts off that ability. Exactly. The older you get, the harder it is with language. Yeah. It's like every kid should take like six or eight languages to be able to like diversify because it's so easy when they're younger. Yeah. You know, but yeah, it does get more difficult. So you were able to, when you went back and moved back, were you able to take English or were you keeping up with that as you were over there? Well, I guess it was my parents kind of had this, you know, they didn't want me to lose it. Yeah. So after that, which was a little bit more not troublesome, but mm-hmm. it was challenging was that my parents sent me to this boarding school in Japan. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so soon after I came from L.A., about maybe within a year, I was yeah. in this boarding school, um, which was in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, from that mountain range middle of nowhere, yeah. I went to Southern California and I came back, and this time I had to live in Tokyo. The big city. Yeah, big city. Um, Wait, was that a disciplinary action, or were you just sent there because it was a good school? Or, Well, I was interested in kind of doing that. Yeah. Um, oh, so it was your idea? No, well, it was my parents, and they asked me whether I'd be interested. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't like they were like, they dumped me. Right, they weren't <laughs> trying to straighten no. you out. <laughs> well, they just want, and it was more somewhat like international school, yeah. which really wasn't. They yeah. just called it international school. Right, they just right. wanted more international students to be in that school, so the school would be international. Yeah. Um, but ended up being there for six years, mm-hmm. and then um, I went to college in Japan, mm-hmm. and then after finishing college, I came to uh, New York. Yeah. Now, um, when I was going to um, college in Japan, you know, Asia is still pretty much a conservative country mm-hmm. you wouldn't really think becoming an artist is an option yeah you thought that's you know those type of occupations happen somewhere in the dreamland right <laughs> so yeah. um and i the boarding school was somewhat these kind of what do you call it 
schools that is focused on getting into a good degree college. Yeah. So I, I was sent it's to like prep a placement sc- school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was sent to prep schools. So I was doing those study for 10 hours a day, kind yeah. of classical Asian type of education that I had to go through. And then my major was business management. So it was <laughs> furthermore realistic, right, than becoming an artist. Yeah, so, right. um, But then, you know, what happened what was interesting was that, you know, college in Japan, you know, you just have to study until you get in. Yeah. Once you get in, you have full four years of freedom. Oh, really? So I never quit skateboarding. Yeah. So what I did was I was in the mountain range. That skateboarding kind of soon led to snowboarding. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I was I started snowboarding when I was in high school, mm-hmm. which was very new. Um, I mean, I you couldn't really buy snowboarding anywhere, so I had to go to U.S. to buy it actually. Yeah. Um, so by college, I think I, I don't know, maybe when I was like sophomore, I got sponsored, so I was about to become professional snowboarder. Mm-hmm. So that kind of the influence of being a skater really stayed. Yeah. And then I kind of skipped the grade. I didn't. I took one year absent and just want to see what I have, how further I can take snowboarding. Yeah. And then I came to US um, to attend like snowboard camps and do some shoots. And then by then I was becoming somewhat like a semi-professional snowboarder. Mm-hmm. And then I got hurt. I got injured. I broke my ankle. Oh no. And um, I had to go through surgery and I couldn't walk for 11 months. Whoa. That was was that during competition or you were just practicing when that happened? Um well that was kind of just practicing. It wasn't yeah. like a, you know, I mean I was competing um but it was just practicing yeah. and it just happened. It's crazy. And then it was like I think I was like 21 and just figured that you can't do I it. I can't right? do this. Yeah. I mean, I probably wouldn't be able to do this after like, you know, maybe several more years, you know, if I'm yeah. lucky, but Longer than that, I can't. So I wanted to stay creative, but I was going to this, you know, business and management. So it soon came that if something creative like you make visually, Mm -hmm. which I've always enjoyed doing, I thought I could kind of do this my entire life. Yeah. So then I was still being a little bit realistic. So I decided to pursue with graphic design. Yeah. And um, while I was going through the college the last year, I didn't do any business interviews, corporation interviews. I just decided to go to this kind of night school program Mm -hmm. um, to see how graphic design is. And I just kind of really kind of, I got really attached to it. You were able to work on visuals, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you were entertaining that side of your brain. Exactly. Well, before we go into that, did you, when you were younger, when you came over here, when you were into skateboarding, is that where the seed of like visual life like being you know an artist was that planted then or were you drawing back then or how did you or were you not even at that point yet you were kind of visually stimulated by that stuff but you weren't actually making work really but the graphic design was that your first foray into actually being creative in the sense of oh no 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 i was i was drawing actually i was copying all those deck drawings yeah Yeah. so um i was one of those because i was always drawing because Mm -hmm. um I guess, you know, being exposed to the culture, I was I got into like the fashion thing a little yeah. earlier than the kids. So you would get this money you get from your parents and buy those, you know, T shirts and all that. Yeah. So obviously, you know, that being said, with those influences I was always trying to copy those skate decks and, mm-hmm. you know yeah. those influences I had. Not that I think that would that was any type of artwork or anything. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it just kinda grew. It just very naturally grew and I just kept drawing and drawing and um and so when I had to give up snowboarding, I thought I just want to stay creative. And then, you know, those skaters slash artists did influence me a lot. So I guess the option would be to try to somewhat relate myself into the creative 
I guess, industry in yeah. a way that I can. And graphic design is a big element of skateboarding because there's so much ephemera, whether right. it's stickers, T-shirts, posters. You know, that was something that influenced me a lot when I was a kid. That's you know, true. I love those the artwork, like Gons, like all his paintings on his skateboards. I was really into that stuff. You right. know? And I think for a lot of people in our generation, that was a real creative outlet. Like people were really interested in the visual side of skateboarding. Right. I guess one of the best, the beauty of um, doing graphic design was that it really came down to DIY, right? I mean, as you said, um, these skaters or whatever, um, starting to make something on their own. It could be from T-shirt. It could be a sticker. It could be a hand-drawn skate decks, and yeah. that just kind of it just grew. And um, I think the benefit of me going to graphic design was that that I can I have access to almost everything. Yeah. And I still feel that way. I mean, you know, now I'm more I guess in this fine arts or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. But um, I can still create a T-shirt, but I can still make these massive painting that goes to a museum. And I think that's yeah. what makes our generation a little bit interesting and unique. You know. Right. Um, Anything could pretty much be artistic like these days, and that was how I kind of grew up, you know. Yeah. So. so you went to graphic design. You did that at nighttime while you were in college. Right. So you, did you finish both of those at the same time? I actually did. Um, obviously, like I said, well, I didn't have to do anything to finish the college part. Right. <laughs> so. I didn't realize it was so freeform. Well, depending on which school and which department you go to, my brother was in the same college mm-hmm. as mine and I asked which is the easiest to graduate because I spent all the years studying to get into that school right so he said just go to management and business I mean uh, when you go to that program once you finish it it has a flexibility to go any direction because you're basically in the business management world yeah. right so you know to answer your question the last later year and a half was I was just focused on that mm-hmm. and the advantage that I took was since I decided to quit um, snowboarding I just took all my artworks, whatever I created, to my sponsor that I used to, you know, ride for. Yeah. Um, and all these magazines that I used to be features in magazine um, shoots. Mm-hmm. And then they would just give me these projects. So that kind of led me into really getting my work out there as well. Yeah. Um, and soon after, I think a year or two later, I actually had become a creative director for one snowboard company. Mm-hmm. So I was in charge of doing all the decks, um, ads apparel lines stickers to everything and then you know what got it more interesting was that see if you do design several years for skate dicks or snowboard Mm -hmm. you kind of get bored of designing everything so then you can outsource to these artist friends that you come friends with or you like to work with yeah so that really became an outlet and also um since snowboarding industry was really big back then Mm -hmm. and obviously it's a seasonal sport so i'm only busy maybe two or three months a year yeah. And that pretty much allowed me to focus on my personal fine, fine art stuff mm-hmm. the remaining time. So when did you start doing that full force? So the way I got, I got my step into the industry uh, was that I finished my college, mm-hmm. and that's when I got in. But I wasn't so sure how I wanted to perceive my career. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want to work for this like design firm. I didn't feel, I wanted to have my work a little bit more personal. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I really didn't know how to make this as a full-time living thing. Yeah. Um, So just to quickly kind of do a little tour, I came to New York Mm -hmm. um, right after I just finished my college of the business degree. And then that moment just really struck me and changed that I got to be here. Yeah. Um, But in order to be here, you have to go to school. Right. So, and then I was never academically trained to be in this creative industry because the night program was only like two hours a day two three um two three hours a class and it's only two three days a week yeah so um and i went to pratt 
So that's how you yeah, that's how I got, yeah. decided basically to, to go to school. Exactly. Again. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then, <laughs> coming to um, Pratt, um, you know, like I said earlier, that I didn't really think becoming a fine artist was an option. Mm-hmm. So that, that thing was never in, like being a painter, being like a fine artist and showing in galleries. But then I came here back then and I still remember meeting some fellow artist friend of my generation, maybe a little older, mm-hmm. that were quite active. Um, they were like Cause and Jose Parla. Yeah. And I remember Jose was still not full time and, you know, this, this group of artists that I met. And, um, and they really influenced me. It's like, wow, becoming an artist is an option in yeah. life. So I did finish my Pratt Institute. Um, I went to communications design, which is graphic design. Mm-hmm. I did finish that in two years, but I remember just finishing up like first semester, I kind of knew that I wanted to um, become more of a fine artist. Yeah. But it wasn't like I want to switch my... Um, your title, your degree title. Exactly. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, even then, you know, my work was pretty graphical, so... I didn't feel the necessity of trying to put my foot into the fine arts department because yeah. I was already like 25 and rather than trying to kind of learn, it's almost like starting a feels in track when you're like 25, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. I had to kind of, yeah, rather than putting my step in there, I just thought, well, you know, what the heck, you know, yeah. just just do what I do and just kind of continue what I've been doing and see how it goes. Yeah. It's just that, you know, I didn't think that I could really sell my work or mm-hmm. Like get my work to somewhere, and this will be a living thing. Right. I thought I always have to work for a company or somewhere. Right. This was so. something you were gonna do in the periphery. Like exactly. You were gonna do the day. Well, which a lot of people, even people who know that they're gonna be artists, they feel like, well, I'm gonna work my nine to five. Right. And then when I get home, I'll be able to do what I want to do, yeah. which is my work. So, did you do that? Did you, after graduating, did you get a job? Right. Or how? You know what? I was fortunate. Um, like I said, from there on, the snowboard thing really grew because a, it was that. Um, second huge trend of snowboarding industry. Yeah. So the amount of um, the boards they were releasing and the amount of money they were spending ad and apparel was getting larger. So yeah. the amount of time I had for designing was the same. It's just that it got really more tighter. Yeah. So that paid off like half of what I needed to, you know, back then to live yeah. off of. And then I wanted, that was when a lot of galleries were, you know, in Chelsea were starting to pop up mm-hmm. and... I really wanted to see how like contemporary art world functions. Yeah. And um, I was very lucky to uh, assist, become an assistant for this one painter mm-hmm. um, who then I think showed at Paula Cooper. Mm-hmm. His name is John Tremblay. He was a minimalist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of artists and Paula yeah, Cooper is a minimalist. Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is kind of interesting because it's pretty much so opposite to what I do now. Yeah. But he had a couple assistants and I saw the work. Um, working as a team and that was a big influence I was actually there for like maybe four months yeah um, I just helped him for the one big show that he was you know prepping um, but that really got me into really kind of focus and putting my step into wanting to put my step into where I am now yeah you know? that's such a, an important um, experience for a lot of people to go to the artist studio and see that kind of you know just the day-to-day working process, right. the logistics of that that you don't learn in school. No one teaches you that. Stuff, well, exactly. You know? That's so like, true. How do the stretchers get made? Where are they coming from? How are we shipping work? You know, where are we getting our supplies? All those like basic day-to-day operational things that you need to do as an artist that no one really teaches you. That's true. That's you know? so true. So I think for for all the people who do, you know, there there's some people who have this 
um, idea that you shouldn't be an artist's assistant because it's not your work or it's, you know, you're making work for someone else. It, the, the flip side of that coin is you're getting experience in a creative field. You're doing work in your field right. and you get to learn so much about the process of it. And then With, you get paid. Yeah. And <laughs> and that was paid. It. yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. And it's like I paid so much for school, right? And then now I'm learning the real stuff to, to, to do right. this full time and I'm, I'm right. getting paid. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know? <laughs> so I wanted to do it longer, but unfortunately, you know, he didn't need so many assistants for a long time. It was, he was just getting ready for a show. But yeah. I learned a lot, you know. I mean, I found out that, you know, major artists really hardly goes to artware stores. Most of the materials are actually bought in hardware stores, yeah. too, you know. Yeah, so, I, Which is now completely applies to my studio practice, too, you know. Right. I mean, pretty much all the thing I buy in art stores is, like, just paint. Yeah. You know. I mean, Everything yeah, some brushes. You can, get, you can get stuff everywhere else, though, for yeah. the rest of it. Exactly. So you were probably there just long enough to get the exact amount of knowledge you needed exactly. for your studio yeah. without just, you know, going feeling like Groundhog Day and being right. there every single day. So it was probably a very valuable experience. It was. And then after that, since, you know, I, I live, I've been living in Greenpoint in Brooklyn for maybe 14 years now. Yeah. Um, I mean, back then it was so cheap living here. That, the reason why I wanted to live here was down G-Line. Nobody wanted to live on the G-Line. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it was cheap as hell. And I was able to kind of maintain it because the living cost was so low here yeah and well before that i actually lived in bushwick but now they call it east Williamsburg. yeah yeah it was really ghetto um, yeah i got mugged twice in the building you um, decided to get out of there yeah and it was like four o'clock not a.m p.m in yeah. the afternoon <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah my, my place got robbed too and yeah. the way it got robbed was that i had a big hole next to the door with a huge hammer and chisel Oh my god! <laughs> it was just it was getting a little wow. too. Wow! Yeah, and then I came to Greenpoint and I saw that there were no window bars and it was right by the river. The yeah. access from Manhattan was so good. Um, so then I came here and then I was able to kind of since then try to kind of manage my way through and see what happens and then just day by day living off and trying to sell artworks and yeah. here I am. So. And look at look at Greenpoint now. I know. I mean, there's TV shows about it. You know, really? Well, there's TV shows filmed here that made it very uh, yeah. popular. Yeah. So we get it. it's a totally different vibe. I've always loved Greenpoint since the first time I, you know, saw it when I first came here. It just had the feeling of what it's like now. You know, these old those side streets with all those old brownstones. It's yeah. so nice. You know, it's got a really great location. But yeah, the G train I think turned some people off for a long time. Although it's much better now than it used yeah. to be. Yeah. And wait till they shut down the L train. Right. <laughs> What's going to happen to that right I now? Know. I know. It's going to be crazy. That's going to be pretty shitty. Yeah, it, it will. <laughs> so when you, uh, one thing I was thinking about when you were growing up back in Japan, a couple questions. One is you mentioned ceramics. Was Were you near one of those villages that's a center? Because you know how there's a certain number. I think it's five or six yeah. of the schools. Were you near one of those? Well, my prefecture, which is Gifu Prefecture, yeah. is very famous for Minoyaki. Yeah. Um, basically, it's earth. They right. use earth, which is natural clay, and then they would um, they would burn it. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, it was close, but it was still couple couple hours away. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the ceramics and um, the porcelains were less less within that culture that I was involved in. Yeah. I got more interest actually recently mm-hmm. um, with it. So yeah, yeah, I love ceramics. I mean, I think I told you when we go, we go to Tokoname, which is Right, an amazing little walking village where you get to see these very old studios where they sell right out of the studio. Mm. It's such a, an amazing 
place that's just nestled away and it's not like any other place when we go there. You know? Well, you know, it's finally ceramics are becoming somewhat important yeah. in arts. Well, I mean, there's a lot of um, these younger contemporary porcelain artists now, yeah. not only Japanese, right? I right. mean, like Anton Kern shows a couple of um, ceramic artists, yeah. um, including Japanese and non-Japanese. And um, I think it was always very under-evaluated. Yeah, um, I, there's, a, there's a historical rift between the sort of you know, fine art, like the gallery ceramicist, and then the people who are showing the work. There's, you know, perception that ceramics is, uh, there's a certain uh, utilitarian aspect to it, right. you know, and it's, I think even within the ceramics world, there's there's a that dual is... perception, and there's, the, the art world has a certain hierarchy that they feel like is, I don't know, it's it's difficult to describe, but it doesn't always transition smoothly into like the fine art, like the Chelsea galleries, as it opposed doesn't. to a lot of ceramic galleries, which exist all over the United States, and people make money right. and sell work and, you know, show their work all over. And then there's these group of artists who are, you know, showing and selling their work for astronomically more and maybe are less refined or it's a little more funky. So there's, yeah. there seems to be this rift sometimes between the two. I mean, I kind of still see that in the contemporary art world, too. I mean, the ceramics have to be somewhat sculptural rather mm-hmm. than utilitarian. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there are these all interesting artists now that they're challenging that, right. especially um, one to mention is a good friend of mine, Takuro Kuwata, who just oh, started yeah. showing with on Salon, Salon 94. Yeah. So he has this really huge T-bowls yeah. with a lot of melting gold. You can't use that. But yeah. then he's referencing that classical, but he makes them huge, too. Yeah. But then he would make these kind of tableau type of huge just objects. Mm-hmm. So I think the way he interprets both was pretty stunning for me. Yeah, and yeah. then, you know, he has no academic study of contemporary art. Yeah. And he just gets it. So I think that's right, just the nature right. of our generation, right? Yeah, he kind of blurs, I think, a lot of lines between yeah. in a really interesting way. Yeah, and it's, then and he, it's good to see in that environment. Too. No, me too. I'm very happy because he also showed this European classical utilitarian mm-hmm. um, ceramics. So yeah. he really bridges both. And I think, again, that's the beauty. I mean, talk about artwork 10 years ago, right? When you're doing counterculture stuff, subculture stuff, nobody took your work seriously. Yeah. So I think even these ceramics artists, they're, they're, they're seeing that difference. They're challenging on their own. They're taking that risk to do something that's a little bit different than before. Yeah. Um, do you feel like I, I, like culturally there is less of a boundary between that because of, like I feel like in Japanese culture there is less of a line between utilitarian objects and what's perceived as beautiful or fine art. You know what I mean? There's more of a dialogue between the things that you use in your day-to-day life and those can be art objects. Awesome. Whereas here there's a real um, propensity to divide you know, things that are commercial and things more. that are fine, quote unquote, right. fine art. You know what I mean? Whereas I, th- I imagine, and if I'm not mistaken, you know, in Japanese culture, it's a little less of a line. You know? Well, it is, but then there, there was a drastic difference. But I think it functioned completely differently. I think when I see art here, is that it's really about authorization, right? It's, yeah. It can't be nothing but art, right? But whereas in Japan, the most valuable, the most highly thought art was always utilitarian art. Mm-hmm. Um, back then in the warrior period, 400, 500 years ago, like in Muromachi or Kamakura period, mm-hmm. you couldn't host a tea ceremony. And in order to host a tea ceremony, you have to be given approval from the great shogun. Right. Once, once they have that, they'll spend as much money as they would to host tea ceremonies. Mm-hmm. So they would call what's called to be meihin, which is amazing with um, mm-hmm. object. 
and those tea saucer could worth back then like more than a castle. Yeah. So it's 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 kind of similar to what's happening in contemporary art world now. Right. Right. Like Rothko painting yeah. could be as much as building an entire New York building. Yeah. So it was you know they were trading. There was a fair trade for that. And people really kind of really search for good material to buy that art. Yeah. So how I function is completely elitist culture, like mm-hmm. our contemporary art world. Mm-hmm. But then the artwork itself was extremely utilitarian. Yeah. So the functions was completely different, but I found it pretty interesting. Was, so, the, was the authorship issue that the artist who made it, it wasn't so much about their work, it was who was sponsoring it in a way with the Shogun, you know what I mean? Or was it still that particular artist's Work because here everything the value of every piece of art hinges so much on that person who's making it, right? And a lot of times it's more about the person than it is the artwork, you know, that's true <laughs> for that's certain true. people, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, that's a print by that person, and it may be, you know, something that you and I might not feel like is a really significant piece or is terribly interesting, but their name carries a lot of weight as far as that artwork, you know, was that happening in the same element with when it comes to ceramics or things like that it was actually both it was who owned it mm-hmm. and then who actually made it as well okay because it's almost like an engineer and an architect yeah so well the patron back then yeah um would advise to make the ceramic artists to do this and that they would challenge by giving them like ideas and drawings yeah and then they built together for example um senorikyu who's known to be the most amazing tea master mm-hmm. was just completely into black yeah. But back then, everything was imported from China. So it was all glamorously gold leaf right. and everything. But he's like, the black is the beauty, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of like now in fashion. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, everything was black. Yeah. But then he found this amazing ceramic artist and they worked together. So his work now is determined to the most, the artist. Mm-hmm. But then, unless you know the patron or the tea master wasn't there, they wouldn't both bounce, you know, as seem to be significant. So they bounce right. off each other. So... Um, Maybe not unlike here with the artisan dealer. Oh, that's because true. where you right. show your work, there is that you know weight or significance or the context of the dealer and in, in the environment where the work's being shown mm. having an impact on how that artwork is seen. That's true. So if you are showing you know painting A in this blue chip gallery on Twenty Fifth Street, for example, right. or you're showing it on West that same exact painting on West Broadway in one of those galleries that's always a group show of, you know what I mean? Like that's that completely different, different. yeah, that you're changed, gonna have, yeah. Obviously, it's going to be such a different... So the, the environment has a lot to do with the interpretation of the piece. And it sounds like that had its effect, too. Like, who's the patron of this work? It did, it you know, it's did. Like it's, it's like a cyclical thing. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not just that piece by itself. But I am interested in that idea of, you know, the um, this a more... I don't, I don't know how to describe it, more of like a fine art significance to a utilitarian day-to-day object, Mm. you know, and because like tea ceremony is a great example of that. I mean, there's such a sort of artistic view of that, of that phenomenon, you know what I mean? Where here, I feel like it's just kind of, maybe that's kind of separated. I mean, I guess... The tea ceremonies could be an actually bad example because such an elitist culture. Mm-hmm. But let's say we just put that tea ceremony thing aside now. Yeah. Every artwork that's evaluated as important mm-hmm. has to do with living. Folding panels. They used to be just room dividers oh, yeah. of beds, right? Yeah. Or folding screens, too. So, um, And then in a lot of castle or in, in houses, they would just hire these painters to paint them. Yeah. So for that reason, it, you know, the beauty aesthetic system wasn't to paint like... 
the patrons, like the David painted Napoleon. It right. was really about painting about the four seasons or mm -hmm. um, the beauty of the changing of the seasons, or so they call it, you know, what, what they say, Kacho Fugets, which is flowers, birds, moon, and wind. Mm -hmm. So they're, 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 they're trying to paint something that really doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and then that history became 300, 400 years of lineage, and they just kept painting on it. So the aesthetic system was built completely unique in Japan. Um, which I kind of feel fascinating. Yeah, I was going to say, is your work elements of that combined with elements of, you know, your kind of culture that you've had here? Is it kind of a merging of those interests and those two kind of ways of seeing? Or That's significantly because um, I'm not really about introducing Japanese culture because yeah. it's really not exciting. I mean, that's been done already right. um, with a lot of, you know, A, classical artists, and mm -hmm. then the beauty can be written and, you know, um, you can read it in any amazing books that's being out there. Yeah. My interest is really living now, you know. I mean, we live in this kind of global interesting age where obviously our work is pretty much influenced by a lot of this, these digital cultures, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first came to U.S., in L.A., it was really hard to find Japanese kids. But now, you know, you're in New York, and you can pretty much meet anybody um, and everybody here, right? I mean, I live Quickly. in... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the, the dynamics of our cultural structure has changed. So that being said, I think it's quite interesting time to see how our culture is structured. I mean, what defines, especially maybe we're both being in New York and, and U.S., it's what defines our culture now, right? You go yeah. to Brooklyn... And then in some parts of Williamsburg, you know, English is not mother, mother tongue. Yeah. Or and you can be in Chinatown, and then some tourists have come up to me saying, "Do you speak English?" Yeah. So it's 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 we can't be any diverse in this, mm -hmm. and I find that fascinating. So basically, you know, to answer your question, what I'm interested in doing is I'm referencing like yeah, these classical culture, but I want to find another completely opposite tool to express that using this counterculture yeah so for example i you know um i've told you about the four seasons so mm -hmm. there's this series of painting i've been working on which is the snow series mm -hmm. uh, you you, you yeah. know very well um but you know once every it's a figurative like an imaginary landscape painting but once everything is done i place the canvas on the floor and really get a wood stick and using enamel paint i would do kind of the same gesture as what you know pollock was doing yeah. but basically i'm only painting the snow so it's it's really that I'm painting this Asian well, Japanese aesthetic, mm -hmm. but if I can kind of find a way to do that in this Western sensibilities, I think I can kind of try to bridge this interesting, you know, the times yeah. we live. Um, it's so hybridly, naturally, kind of organically blended in together that the boundaries are really not there. Yeah, I guess what I what I say a lot these days is that, you know, I don't like the word. East meets West. Mm -hmm. It's more. Um, it's more East is West. I mean, come yeah. on. If you circulate the Earth, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you go same direction. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess the other challenge is I love conceptual art. I love contemporary art. So, but then again, Asian art is completely decorative. decorative. Yeah. So I want to find a way to make it as decorative as possible, but as concept. There's a full, you know. Yeah. Well thought concept as possible as right. well. So merging those, and you're merging a what is probably seen as a more traditional way of working with the hand and the way that you're making your paintings and even the shape canvases being this organic process. But you're, you know, I, I know the digital tools are a big part of the process as well. So um, is technology in your work something that you feel like maybe is more behind the scenes and 
it's intrinsically part of that work? Or are you interested in it being a little more on the forefront of, you know, the way that you're creating your paintings? Because people who come to the gallery might not necessarily know that you do these sketches in Photoshop or you're working on, you know, drawings in a computer. Right, right. Is that something that you feel like you're comfortable kind of like burying that into the process to where you just hope it comes out in the end? Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. My work is not completely generated in front of, made in Photoshop first. Yeah, yeah I, since... The way it looks, I get a lot of questions that, well, this is this, you know, preliminary made in Photoshop, and you paint it, which is completely the other way around. But digital techniques do Photoshop takes in a lot of good effect in my work. Yeah. So I would start drawing, and there are these certain parts that I digitally create. Or, for example, some of my paintings are reference of classical Asian work. So mm-hmm. I would patchwork them in Photoshop and then print them out and then redraw them with hands. So there's right. always that analog and digital Photoshop techniques that's being blended in together. So it, it's definitely a big, big part of it. And mm-hmm. I like to talk about that because that's what makes my work a little bit interesting, I guess. Yeah. Um, I wish I could possibly create everything in Photoshop because my work is so labor-intensive it takes... <laughs> Yeah, but that's what's really interesting when you see the paintings in person, too, is there's clearly an element of collage that you can imagine has something to do with technology. I mean, collage is a technology in a way, right? Right. You're you're sort of pasting things and then, you know, there's, I think when you look at it, you understand there's a process of some sort of technology involved with it, even from, you know, some areas being taped off and being hyper tight or stenciled, and then that mixed with loose kind of runny drips and, you know, like you're putting it all in there. Right. You know? So I think it's, that dialogue is interesting too, and not only, you know, what, conceptually what it means, but actually the physical way that you're making the paintings. Right. Mirrors that same, you know, dichotomy. Thank you. Um, Thanks. That's that's a huge compliment, actually. (laughs) Because, um, (laughs) well, I know, you know, again, about being a figurative painter, mm-hmm. I guess, in contemporary art, is it itself a little bit of a challenge, right? Yeah, well, everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's all a challenge. Yeah, so, but yeah, that is that is a specific challenge. So, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I do also do this abstract series as well. But I guess I'm a more of a figurative painter. I mean, anything I make is more on the figurative side. Mm-hmm. Um, so when things are more figurative, it's it's easier to get somewhat to more decoration in a way. Yeah. Um, so then how did the concept take place? It's technically, yeah, I incorporate Photoshop. Um, it's about the layering. It it's really comes down to patchworking, different aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a lot of influence by actually music. I mean, um, I patchwork a lot of great masters. I, I, I reference existing pieces from like Picasso to Hulkside to mm-hmm. you know, abstract painters like Sarah Morris to... San Francisco, whatever. Yeah. Um, I guess what's a, what I try to make myself a little bit different than what a lot of people done in the past was it's almost like sampling. Mm-hmm. If I incorporate several different master within one work, mm-hmm. it, it looks like it's none of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, Picasso painted like Velasquez, and they would pick one artist, repaint it. But I don't think there was really a lot of artists that just referenced so many artists. Yeah. But then I got the idea from like, um, you know sound producers sampling a lot of different other notes mm-hmm. um, I could use the term as ready-made or appropriation or whatever yeah. but it just kind of simply came down from you know the type of music that I listened to it was really kind of sampling and then, and then at the end the overall piece really becomes one yeah so. well I think uh, as opposed to being more in the dialogue of the ready-made I see it more as collage mm. because you're taking these it's not like you're exactly taking an image from that classical I mean you you 
do quote some things, I'm sure, but there's also just like when you're saying you kind of pollock the snow in there, you know what I mean? Right. You're collaging these different techniques or these different expressive ways of making work. And then it's becoming a collage both historically in the sampling that you're doing over time. And then in the painting itself, there's a collage of the physical way that you're making the work, yes. which is interesting. And that's what, you know, hip hop was founded. I mean, it, you know, it was digging through crates to get these samples right. of music. And a lot of times that historically meant a lot to, let's say, the African-American community, you know, digging through jazz records or early mm. blues or things like that, and then using that as kind of the, the groundwork for their music, which was political and was about advancement of that culture, right. of hip-hop culture. So it's a really interesting dialogue, like a parallel, to think about, you know, art sampling. And it's, it's weird. It's not really sampling what you're doing. You, you know, art collage and the collage of sampling and something like hip-hop or electronic music, which I think does it pretty well. Right, exactly. And I think that's, that's what's making it unique. I mean, it was like copying, right? You know, but yeah. then it just came up with this new term. It's not copying anymore. Yeah. As long as it's collage <laughs> polished enough that it looks different. Right, right. Um, so, and that, that's kind of been my interest. Like, try well, to find... Well, yeah. how did you get from, you know, over here at eight years old listening to, I imagine, like, punk or, like, you know, like, rock and roll and stuff like that, to today which what are you listening to today like what's what are your influences as far as like what you're listening to in the studio well, i got into from my brother you know i said earlier from my older brother's influence i really got into music from like heavy metal yeah um and then around when i was doing snowboarding that went to beastie boys oh, okay and then from there on i i, yeah. I really got into uh, it, it was natural i did skateboarding yeah you know listen to rock and punk and heavy metal and then BC Boy Games about, and then that kind of got me one foot into um, hip hop. Yeah. Um, but then hip hop naturally then navigated to electronic music more. Right. Um, and then just being in New York, you just meet everybody, right? Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. meet DJs, you meet musicians, you meet you know rappers, you meet yeah composers. So I just kind of got all influenced, and then that's when it really came down to mishmashing everything. You yeah. know, everything has its own beauty, and um, it just naturally led to this kind of a mess you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful mess it's there's always that gateway musician right like for you it was the beastie Boys. yeah it was, it was pretty much the beastie Boys. And for me i remember i got uh, the cassette of uh, anthrax yeah i'm the man where it was like a who someone rapped on it right it was a it was a um collaborative oh, i'm not gonna be able to think of it but yeah it was uh anthrax on the man i think was mm. the cassette but it was like this rock and roll that transitioned to rap and rap. you know there was kind of like and then the beastie boys did that well right. But yeah, when my friends who were skateboarding were listening to everything from like Depeche Mode to, you know, the Beastie Boys or NWA or Public Enemy, things like that. And, you know, it's it's kind of like growing up in that environment, you early on, you learn how to listen to a lot of different things or start to collage things, which is amazing now to think of what young people are, have access to, you know, uh, no, that's that so we true. didn't. I mean, maybe they lose a little bit in the digging deep or having to find things, but right now you have the world at your fingertips as far as music is concerned and art or visual images. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you, if you want to listen to something from Nigeria, like high life music, you just, you know, it's a it's click so away. It's easy, right? It's you know, it used to not be it. that easy to get, yeah. to get. No, information was so hard to get back then, right? I mean, yeah. now it's gotten so easy to achieve and and there is that new phase now, I think. It's it's just dynamics, again, has completely changed. So, yeah. Um, and I think that kind of reference what we do too. We kind of have to, you know, 
be up with it too, you know, yeah. like catch up with how, well, I mean, it's so, it's so easy to get your, you know, being a visual artist, it's just so easy to be, I don't like to use the word consume, but yeah. so easy to get like, um, like too exposed. Yeah. So it's like, how do you kind of adjust yourself so that, you know, you're, you're coming up with new ideas, you know, new fresh visions. And I think for me, that was music, you know, yeah. musicians are so kind of translucent in a way that they kind of shift in to one way to another, but it's just, it's it's you know it's so free yeah. i mean i feel when i first got my step into contemporary art where it was like there's a lot of you can't do you shouldn't do right right yeah, so yeah, it was definitely. like so much of rules and that's what you know i mean obviously yes because it's that full history you know right. you have to be offspring in order to be kind of significant and important but i think that's becoming even looser and looser you know and i yeah. I, I find that pretty attractive and interesting time so i mean i didn't really take in any academic fine arts program but mm-hmm. The more I'm in this contemporary art thing, I feel it's I feel more attractive, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's loosening up because people are getting bored of what's you know can do and can do, you know. Right. So right. yeah, and there's so many things available for people to look back and dig into, you know, maybe Aboriginal art in Australia or things right. that you know were never on the radar. At least when I was in art school growing up, you know, I just didn't never saw a lot of this stuff that is so easy to see now. Right. You know, and yeah, there were the rules. It was like the historical rules of, you know, like what's coming before you and how you respond to that. But what happens now when everything's just blown out of the water and everyone's doing everything all at once, you know, Mm. I'm always really interested in music in Japan because it seems like they don't really have those rules when it comes to (laughs) popular music because you can watch a 30 minute music program and it'll go from like, kids playing death metal yeah. to like punk rock with rapping over it and then like an 80s sounding I mean it's just total, it's the wild wild west yeah it is wild wild west still. <laughs> there's no rules <laughs> which must be really liberating you know? well it's interesting I mean yeah there's a lot of these producers that come with these interesting ideas but then again it's 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 interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, that's the fe- the other flip side of that. I think the fear of that is that if you have all this information and all these um, ways of making, let's say visually, at your disposal, and you just reach back to 1940 and find this fringe art movement, and you're like, oh, I, that looks cool. I'll make paintings that look like that. Mm. Or, you know, where there's no substance to it, and maybe right. it's just like sampling and it's kind of empty. I think that's the flip side of the coin, maybe. That's true. That's that, true. you know, or with music, it's like, oh, yeah, punk sounds cool. I'll make this punk song. But it has, it's totally de- disconnected to what the ethos and the energy of punk really was. Right. You know? So I think the strongest artists are those who, you know, use that, those languages, but at the same time it really means something for them and they're pushing it, you know. That's true. Direction. And then aesthetically it builds a new thing, I think. That's the whole key. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So what are you uh what are you working on now? What's coming up? Uh well I have a show coming up in July. I really didn't book too many shows this year. Mm-hmm. Um the past two years I've kind of going around the world showing them with my galleries and I had some public art projects too so I've been quite busy so I just wanted to get back in studio yeah um this year because no matter what your gallery is gonna try to pull you into some shows right, so right. um but you know um Swiss Beats who's kind of been a great supporter of um you know New York younger artists right now has kind of pushed my work um mm-hmm. as well and um, he's organizing a big show coming up I think in mid-July. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting roster, which I shouldn't be announcing now, so um, I'll let that reveal on its own. <laughs> but I have a big show coming up, and I'm making this huge, massive painting right now, mm-hmm. which, Brian, you saw earlier. Yeah. So that should be up. 
Um, and other than that, nothing really solid right now. I just yeah. want to kind of focus in just studio and Some really studio not. Studio time. Point out is when you're when you're when you have shows lined up, you, there's always a mount that you have to create. So I just didn't want to get too pulled with my deadlines. This yeah. Year. Um, well, inevitably, too, when you're saying to yourself, well, I'm going to take a few months off here right. to try to just focus in on the studio and work on some new ideas. And inevitably, things are coming up that... <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. That, oh, can you do this for this? And, yeah. you know, you get kind of stretched in. But it is nice to have that time to just, you know, focus yeah, and like, not be moving all over the place. Ex- and, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, it's more that to-do list, too. Like, you can't... When, you're, when you have to finish a lot of work, especially with my studio practice we can't crank in so many work it's so i can't even go see galas for opening or museum shows yeah. it's like you know i look back like, when's the last time i went to guggenheim yeah right that happens a lot so i just wanted to kind of have that space where i can go see a show and get really motivated and influenced like yeah this is yeah. what i wanted to do it's I think, essential you know yeah, that's the ener- it gives you a certain kind of energy that you can't get any other way exactly and i have to say doing the podcast and being able to you know, talk to all these people. For me, it just gives me so much energy because I'm able. To, it gets me out. It makes sure that I'm out talking to my peers and right. you know. And when you're, you can. It's so easy in the city. It's so busy to just you know. Oh yeah, I haven't been to Chelsea in a few months. You right. know, no, that happens. I really should go see. Yeah, <laughs> make sure that I'm seeing the shows that are up right yeah. now. You know, so that's pretty much it. I mean, that's pretty much my plan for this year. So just kind of stay loose. Yeah, but then being very. Productive mm-hmm. and a to be very creative, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I've done enough outputting for the past, I guess, you know, twenty four months. I just want to kind of stay in to do lots more inputting. Nice, I can output. So that's pretty much my plans for this year. And um, it's nice that finally New York's getting warmer. Yes, I mean we've been having this weird weather. It's the, been really weird, and today uh, it's cold again. Yeah, it's cold. <laughs> it goes up and down. Yeah, you never know what you're gonna get. All right. Well, thanks for having me over. No, thank you. It was great to talk. Yes, definitely. Talk soon. All right. Thank you. Sound and Vision is recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Brian Alfred. Check out the Sound and Vision Instagram page at Sound and Vision Podcast, where you can see images that I take at the studio, during the podcast, and at the galleries. You can also follow my work at Alfred Studio on Instagram and paintchanger.com. Thanks to Golden for sponsoring the podcast. Check out their paints anywhere you buy art supplies. Please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps the podcast. And you can also check out the podcast on Spotify and Stitcher and Google Play and other places where you find podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and supporting Sound and Vision.